Now that we're in the last month of 2020, is it fair to say that this has been the most unpredictable year in memory, if not your lifetime? Whether it's been a year of disappointments, plateaus, or pivots, author, consultant, and executive coach Mitch Russo helps his clients reset their company by first adjusting their mindset. Mitch's seasoned business advice, valued by such renowned thought leaders as Tony Robbins, Chet Holmes, and Shark Tank's Kevin Harrington, will be of great benefit if you're ready to make 2021 the year you always envisioned. Mitch Russo, it is such a pleasure to have you on Game Face Execs Podcast. I've been looking forward to this interview for some time. And I know my listeners, my viewers, our overall audience is going to learn a lot from this conversation. So let's get right into it. You and I are talking at a time when a lot of businesses, entrepreneurs, may be struggling. And they've spent so many years and resources building up a business, you know, launching an idea. And now they're wondering, what's next? Is it really worth pursuing? Or should I just give it up and take another route? Was it a good dream at one time, but now it's time to act like an adult and go do something else? As a business consultant to so many successful entrepreneurs and enterprises, how would you respond to that question that people may be having? Well, I mean, there are dire and desperate situations caused by COVID-19, as you know. We've had restaurants all over the country go bankrupt. There's an estimate that says, if not half, at least a third of existing restaurants are out of business for good. And, you know, when it comes to the type of work I do, we don't really work with retail establishments. But I recently had a chance to chat with an owner of a chain of restaurants who basically called me almost out of desperation and said, look, I would love to just pick your brain for 15 minutes. And I said, sure. And we got on the phone and we chatted. And after hearing his tale of woe, I started saying, well, wait a minute, let's go down a different route here. Uh, what are your assets? What have you done over the years that's unique to you? I discovered that there was a wealth of data and information that he had on purchasing food, on storage of food, on the management of the food process, then on simple things like recipes that can cook quickly using the same temperature ovens. I mean, it was like a network of brilliance, maybe even a treasure chest of brilliant ideas that I would have never known existed unless I pushed in this direction. So by the end of this 15-minute call, an hour later, it turns out that I had encouraged him to start documenting pretty much everything he felt like was valuable and unique about what he had learned 20 years building a chain of restaurants. And at that point, what we are planning on doing is working together to help him launch an educational program that it will be a combination of online learning and Zoom-based coaching and eventually a live component where people can come and literally start a restaurant business in a live laboratory with him. So he went from being depressed and pretty scared to super optimistic and excited about the future. That's a reset. And you've actually coined that phrase, business reset, where you take people who may have reached a crossroads, either again by themselves as they're trying to launch this fantastic idea that they've had, or their business has just hit a fork in the road. Can you describe a little bit more about the whole business reset mentality and some of the practices that you use with your clients? Yes. The first thing that we do whenever I work with a client on a business reset is to deal with the mindset first. Mindset is the most dangerous thing when it comes to success and failure. If you don't have your mindset right, no amount of coaching is ever going to help. I'm sure, Rob, you understand that better than anybody. So the idea is let's get people from a place of despair into a place of hope, and let's do that quickly. Now, once we feel like there's some hope and some confidence in the possibility of a future, we then look for the strategy first as to how that will happen. Different businesses have a different approach. For example, many of my clients have been keynote speakers who are literally out of business and unfortunately probably will be through 2022. And so one of the things that I did with my keynote clients is similar to what I did with my restaurant clients is I basically say, let's take an inventory of what your intellectual property is. And we do that. And we basically decide in advance whether it makes sense to start structuring those as programs. And so one of the things that we do that's different than I would say with our restaurant friend we talked about later or earlier is now we want to approach the same 
clients as they had before and say, look, yeah, I used to speak from stage. I used to do your keynotes, but we're in a different world now. As you know, we have a program that's even more effective. And so what we're going to do is we're going to be doing an online keynote effectively to get people started. And we're going to be following that up with a three-level coaching program. We're going to coach your VPs and execs first. We're going to get their mindset straight. We're going to teach them about what we've learned about how to both manage people and manage under diverse situations and how to affect change in an organization where everybody is scared. Because the overall tone of everybody in every company is scared. And the only places that doesn't exist are the folks at Facebook, Google, and maybe Netflix. They're excited. But for the rest of us, there's a lot of fear out there. So we address that first. Then what we do is we create what I call the university structure. And what we do with the university structure is we explain, I explain to my clients how they should potentially explain this to their clients, which is to say, look, the idea is to get them into the program and sign on for the first part of this, knowing that there's a second and third part, and maybe even a fourth part. And the idea is to create lifetime value, the highest lifetime value possible. So just like a university, there's a big, big job to sell you into freshman year, to get you to come to our college. But really, there's not much of a sales effort to sell you from freshman to sophomore year. The assumption is made that if you're a freshman, you're going to become a sophomore. So we take the same approach with the way we train people to sell into a corporation. Now, this has become extremely successful multiplying the value of that customer relationship far, far more than a simple keynote would have done. Now, to be fair, a keynote might have generated ten or fifteen or $20,000 in an afternoon in the past. But now what we do is we generate six figures by building a long-term program and getting people involved in it where we are actually documenting and targeting objectives all throughout the process showing our clients exactly what we've done and bringing down to earth the value that we have delivered so that they want to do the next phase of the program. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And the type of uh, clients that you put through this business reset, are they diverse as far as you mentioned a lot of them are keynotes or they were until current circumstances. Do they come from a variety of disciplines and backgrounds and do they keynote for different purposes or are they kind of in one channel? Well, the particular clients that I've just spoken about have all been keynote presenters for corporations or nonprofits. They all speak from stage. They all have a transformational message. And some of them already have training programs. Many don't. Some of them have books. Some don't. So what we try to do is we try to build their authority first. And in many ways, this is what we would do for any client. I have a I haven't worked with him yet, but we're in the process of chatting about how to work together. He happens to be an exterminator. And you might say, well, why would an exterminator even need a business coach? Well, it turns out that he's 65 years old. Uh, He has a nice business. But the problem is, is that he has a very specialized type of process. And he services homes that are particularly sensitive to chemicals and Anyway, the bottom line is that what we wanted to do was transition him out of the business in either one of two directions. And we chatted about this in our initial call, which is maybe it might be a time to sell the company. But he wasn't too happy about that. He loves what he does and he feels he'd be bored. I told him he could join me here in Florida. I'd keep him busy on the fishing boats if he likes. But what we really talked about is maybe how to create the equivalent of a coaching organization or a sales force or a network of operators who he does not have to pay directly a salary, in fact, could pay him as a result of the training. And then from there, conduct his business more like the CEO than as the operator itself. So Mitch, I'm hearing you talk about, or at least you're alluding to something that you and I have spoken about previously, which you call the alternate sales channel, which is a fascinating concept that you have, you have used to great success. So can you elaborate a little bit more on what the alternate sales channel is and who can actually utilize such a practice? Sure. Well, I'll tell you first what it's not. It's not a traditional sales force where you pay people. So imagine if you could hire a sales force, bring them on board, get them excited and have them pay you for the privilege of selling your products. Well, I mean, the bottom line is most people would love to have 
a bunch of salesmen come on board, pay them, and then sell their products for them. That would be just great. Well, the bottom line is that what we do is we look for a certain type of business where this process can fit nicely into the structure of what they're doing. Sometimes it's not a fit. Sometimes it is. That's what we do when we have an exploratory session was we try to understand what really the nature of their business is. So I've done this for SaaS companies. I've done this for real estate companies. I'm doing it now for a company that goes into your home and clears out all of your unwanted possessions and liquidates entire homes in 10 days. We're building an entire countrywide network of certified partners who do this for them and pay them for the privilege of working with them. Hmm. So the whole idea here of the alternate sales channel is it's not a traditional channel in any way. It's not based on an employee relationship. And it has, uh, it leans heavily on making the person who you bring into this organization highly independent while still supporting them at a much higher level than almost any other company would think of doing. That's part of what the channel is about. We call that certification. And in the past, certification was you go learn something, you take a test, and you're certified. That process can cost anywhere from $99 to $18,000. I think John Maxwell has a coaching certification for somewhere in that range, $18,000. But what you get is the same. You get basically a certificate you could put on your wall. When we build certification, we're really creating a business environment that our certified partners step into, which includes lead generation, public relations, technology in place for them, all of the elements of having a business, which they were never very, they'll admit, they were never very good at to begin with. So we're supplementing all the things that they didn't like to do and weren't doing well with an entire professional environment ready to go into action for them. And that's for the the business owner, you say? Exactly. And so you're able to assist them in identifying other skilled individuals that can not only represent their product or their offering, but also bring those other functions within the business or to the business. Is that correct? That is correct. And most of the time, it's like that uh, mythical story of the beggar sitting on a box in the, in the bazaar, begging for money until a wise man comes along and he holds up his cup to the wise man and says, can I have some change? And the wise man looks at him and says, well, why would I give you change when you're sitting on gold? And he said, what do you mean? And he says, well, look under the box. And he walks away. The beggar's been sitting on that box for 20 years. It's never moved. He opens the box, picks it up, discovers that there's gold coins in that box. Well, we have that same approach. We take that same approach when we work with our clients because we say, look, the best people to enroll first are your own clients. Your own clients, in many cases, would love to do what you do. And if that's the case, then we enroll them and we get them trained and we get them set up. And we get them out there doing just what we do. Mm, fascinating. Now, this is a model that you developed some time ago. Isn't that right, Mitch? Kind of talk to us about the genesis of this approach. Yeah, I have to say I stumbled across this as a bad idea, which later got refined into a good idea. Here's what my problem was. I was running a software company that was basically the victim of our own success. We had way too many clients. We couldn't support all of our clients. We had hold times in the half hour range, and that was completely unacceptable to me. So long story, I'll try and shorten it. Long story was that we got a call from a very important woman in Los Angeles. She was the head of the Los Angeles Bar Association Technology Division. And she was very upset at us of what we had a software product for lawyers. And she said that our software crashed her computer. And not only was she going to sue us, but she was going to report this to the entire bar. Now, this is $99 product. So, Rob, you got to get the idea here. Resources here are not the issue anymore. Now we have reputation and potential influence. So I said to her, look, I promise you that in, at least in the guaranteed 48 hours, we will get your system fixed even if I have to fly to California and I'm in Boston, Massachusetts, all by myself to do it for you. So do not worry. We'll be back to you soon. And now I get on the phone because there was no internet, trying to figure out how to get an airline reservation. Couldn't get out there. Then I think to myself, okay, what else could I possibly do? Then I had this idea. I had recently spoke to some of my own clients in that area. And I remembered one particular excited, happy, smart woman who worked at a law firm her name was Anne. 
So out of the blue, I called up Anne and I said, Anne, this is Mitch Russo. And she got all excited. She had no idea I would ever be calling her. And, oh, Mitch, so wonderful to hear from you. What can I do for you? I said, well, I have a favor to ask and I'll pay you for your time. So here's what I'm looking for. I'd like you to go over to this person's office. I'd like you to figure out what's going on. And if you can, see if you could fix her system. And now California was three hours ahead and it was already like four o'clock in the afternoon. And she goes, you know what? I get off work in 30 minutes. So I'm just going to go there tonight. And I said, well, that is amazing. Thank you so much. So now I'm at home and I'm like sitting on pins and needles. I gave her my home phone number. Again, no cell phones back then. And uh, I'm waiting and waiting. And finally she calls me up and so Anne, how'd it go? And she goes, Oh, it went great. It turns out that she needed to do the blah, blah, blah. And it was, it's all fixed. And she was so happy. And guess what, Mitch? I said, what? She goes, she gave me a hundred dollars. <laughs> and I said, really? She goes, yes, Mitch. And now these were the words that changed my life. She said, and Mitch, if there's anybody else in the San Francisco area or the Los Angeles area that you want me to help, you let me know. And all of a sudden, my brain exploded. And I said, what would happen if I had hundreds of ands all over the country willing to go out there and help my clients? So what is Ann? Ann is already a client. She's already at the mastery level on my products. What would happen if I simply invited them to work with us directly and, and dispatch them as certified consultants? Well, I got to work and we put together a little test. It was hard meant you really had to know your stuff to pass. But in the end, what ended up happening is we sold these tests for $1,000. And if you flunked, you got your 500 of your 1,000 back. So we had generated a new product just by selling tests. We had no idea we'd sell so many. And then at that point, once they passed the test, we said, okay, you're certified. And now we started using them as dispatch for tech support issues. Now this seemed to be going great. I mean, we had 60 people in the field and they were pretty busy. They were thrilled. But then something weird started to happen, like weird. All of a sudden, we would get these phone calls of very upset people, and they would come in through tech support. So I wasn't aware of them. Tech support would get the call, but they would deal with the problem. So I still wasn't aware of them till finally we got a threat because it turns out that what we were unaware of is that these people who we had quote unquote certified were not business people. They were not professional people. So they showed up looking like Elmer Fudd. They showed up smelling like a trash dumpster. They were late. They were rude. They were not on time. They were incompetent. So we had some big problems on our hands. So my vice president walked in of marketing and said, this was a stupid idea, Russo. You should shut this down right away. And then I said, you know what? I will shut it down right away, but it's not a stupid idea. It's a good idea. And I'm going to prove it. So I shut down the program. I sent apology letters. And I said, I want to speak to every person who's been impacted by this. And so I personally, as the CEO of a 100-person company, took every single phone call from every single disgruntled client, and I made it good, every one of them. And then I rebuilt the program from scratch. It took me six months, and I reissued the program and at a much higher price, and I held my breath. I had no idea what was going to happen next. And to my surprise and delight, a bunch of people applied, a bunch of people went through all of the training, and it was much more detailed this time. And they finally were truly professional certified consultants. And now that program over a course of less than 18 months ballooned to 350 certified consultants who were out there helping my clients with my software, with my customers generating a million in revenue just from certification fees, testing fees, and symposium fees, generating another, they became my third largest sales channel right behind retail and direct. So I didn't even expect that to happen. That was a total surprise. And my tech support hold time dropped over 20% and was still dropping by the time the program had evolved to that level. So you might say it was an accident how I came up with this. And I had never heard of it before. I didn't have anyone to model, but that's what we did. And it was that model later that I continued to refine and refine and build the tool set and build the legal documents and build all of the flow charts and mind maps to go with it. So now when I work with a client, we have a very smooth engagement. We can go from zero to 100 in 
less than 90 days, and we could launch their certification program, generate mid six figures most of the time on launch, and then from there, do it every quarter. So that's the base story of how certification came about for me. Fantastic. That's living proof that necessity was the mother of your invention, right? You had to find a solution to that disgruntled client in LA. Yes. Uh, So great testament to that principle. Let me ask you a couple of questions about that story though, Mitch. First of all, can this certification type of process, the sales channel that you've developed for yourself and for clients, can it work for service-oriented businesses as opposed to those businesses that are selling a product? You had a software. And so people needed to obviously become proficient and expert in your software. Mm -hmm. Can it work for a business-centered organization as well? I meant a service-oriented business, if you will. Maybe give me some examples because we have service businesses who are certification clients now. Great. So if, if I have a consulting business, let's say. Right. And if it's helping people produce living wills or living trusts, mm-hmm. then obviously I would build a system through your channels where I could certify certain qualified attorneys, I presume, who could go out and share our system of building those, those living trusts for clients around the world. Well, there's two elements of that. The first element of that is that it sounds like you would need to be a lawyer before you can perform a legal obligation or your customers are lawyers. Mm-hmm. So as selling certification, you are selling a product to a lawyer. That's the first thing. The second thing is, is that the product is the certification and the know-how and the documents and maybe the document assembly software to create those for their clients, which you will enable. So you really are a SaaS-based company is from the way that's described. So you're a SaaS-based company and you have clients that need service who would like to take advantage of the product. The answer would be yes, with a caveat. The caveat is that you're going to need to be really, really careful because, and again, having sold to lawyers all throughout the years of selling legal time and billing software, I can assure you that lawyers will look for anything they can to trip you up in your business because they want to see what you're doing so they could do it too. So if you are in any way playing in a space that is not even exactly legal, then you will be called out by your potential clients. However, the other thing is, is that, you know, one of Mitch's rules is you never sell anything without knowing what you're going to sell next. So the whole idea is that I wouldn't really promote it as a, you know, a program to sell will generation. I would promote it to lawyers as a entry-level service to bring new clients into your law firm. And by the way, this is the fastest, easiest way to do so in bulk, in quantity. So for me, I would position it differently from the way you described it. But realistically, if your company is not doing that service, then it is in fact a good idea to think about certification for that. Second question I had related to your story is that this first woman who you hired, who did that favor for you and she got a hundred bucks from the client, she obviously had skills in knowing how to work the software so that it didn't crash a system. Right. And then you built a kind of an army, that sales channel from that point on. But what started to crumble around you was the professionalism. Yes. Those individuals. In other words, in order to maintain this new product that you had created, this sales channel, it wasn't so much the hard skills of being fluent in, in tech or software. It was the soft skills in how to be on time and how to address a client professionally, probably how to listen and how to speak appropriately to clients. So I just find that very interesting that it was the soft skills perhaps that could have undone this fantastic idea you had. Am I correct in assuming that? And if I am, how did you fix that? Rob, if I would have known what you said when I first started, I would have saved myself a lot of grief. But you know what else I would have done? I would have missed out on learning that and figuring out how to fix it. You're absolutely right, first of all. So here's how I fixed it. First of all, I wrote a manual that was about three inches thick that contained chapters on how to dress, how to show up, how to speak, how to conduct an engagement, Here are all of the pre-formatted letters that you send before and after your engagement. Here's what you say when you follow up. 
et cetera. Now that was part of it, but not the most important part. The second thing I did is I created the code of ethics. And in order to create the code of ethics, I had to first examine myself. What are my values? So we crafted what we call the value Parthenon, which means that the roof of the Parthenon are my values as the CEO. So what is my why? My why is to find a better way. So I can't look at anything, and this, by the way, has, you could ask my ex-wives about this as well. I can't look at anything and not try to fix it. It's unfortunately my nature. And the values that I have are to always find a better way. That's one of my values. My other value is never, ever, ever leave a customer in a place where they weren't far better than they were before you met them. My third value might be that I'm looking to create a relationship, not a transaction. And there's several others, but this is what I call my values. Now you have yours, which are similar to mine, I'm sure, and more. But then the next step is if you think about the values as the roof of the Parthenon, and we think about the columns of the Parthenon as our code of ethics, then what we have is a system that is almost guaranteed to make sure that none of these mistakes happen in the future. So what we're doing, Rob, is we're building a culture in advance of even launching the program. And in this process, we create, and I give my clients a pre-formatted culture course that they record in their own voice that transmits these values and the culture and the code of ethics to everybody who joins and becomes part of us, us meaning the company that's building certification. They even take an exam on the culture. That's how close, how far we go to make sure that they truly understand that this isn't a free-for-all. This doesn't get to devolve into entropy. This instead has a set of rules that everyone must follow. Now, the way I like to think about it is that freedom is created within boundaries. And as I said before, if you think of the Parthenon, everything inside the columns, you're free to do whatever you want. But as long as you stay within the columns, you have absolute freedom to build your business, to create for yourself anything you want. And with my help, with our help, always. Does that make sense? It makes absolute sense. In fact, as a business owner myself, and over the many years that we've been in business, we have never been a hundred person company like you've led before. We've always had a small staff relatively, but over the years, we've hired and employed somewhere around 80, 85 individuals. Mm -hmm. And one of the biggest challenges that any small business owner has is especially, I would add, if their business is based on a service, is that they're very protective of their brand, their reputation, and how they are perceived by the market. And so when you bring someone into that small family called a company, you want to make sure that that person is not going to disrupt or undo all the work you've done. You and I have heard this a thousand times. It takes a lifetime to build a reputation and five minutes to destroy it. Being as careful as you are and building that code of ethics, that's such an important point. And it also, I'm sure, brings a lot of comfort to those who might want to pursue the path that you've just described, even working with you, Mitch. Mm -hmm. This turns out to be the key to success for any business. If you are not transmitting your values to the people who you work with on a daily basis, if you are not leading from the top. So on my LinkedIn page, it says it has a statement. I know everyone else has pictures of them on stage and waving. Mine has a statement. And the statement it says on my LinkedIn page is that the CEO's job is to create and to communicate. And to me, this is the highest form of leadership. And Creating can take many, many forms. Creating could be building programs, creating sales teams, creating, but not doing. See, communication is the second most important skill of the CEO. If the CEO cannot communicate, that means nobody knows what the CEO is thinking. Now, I struggled being an introvert growing up to understand how to communicate effectively. And I probably went through and envied a lot of the folks that were gifted naturally with this charisma. I never had any of that stuff. I had to learn it the hard way. And I did it by trying to understand really myself first. And this was such a great challenge that I documented this process. And this is part of what we teach when we build certification. 
we have to make sure that the CEO is willing to do the communication part. Most people are good at creating or think they are, uh, but they get so mired in the operation that they don't have enough time to create. But the communication part would be considered excessive by the average CEO. The average introverted CEO would look at what I do or look at what I say and say, well, that's way too much. That's a little too much communicating, Mitch. But it's so important because people need to know you. And if everyone says, hey, you know what? I'm one of Rob's guys. I'm on Rob's team. They need to know who Rob is and they need to know what you care about. And they need to know what makes you smile because ultimately that's what they want to do. They want to make you smile. They want to fulfill their lives and they, they want to make you and your clients happy. You know, if I could just add one thing to what you said, and if you disagree with it, interrupt me here. But you said in order for the employees to know what the the CEO is thinking, he or she has to learn how to communicate. Part that I would add is that in order for the CEO to know the employees, their colleagues, they also need to communicate. That's right. Because communication is not just talking, it's also listening, as I'm sure you would attest uh, in your own career. Let me me ask you, if I may too, Mitch, when you are looking at a prospective client, Mm -hmm. someone who you want to take to the proverbial next level, whose business you want to help reset, or you want to build these types of channels and certification programs that you're describing, is there the perfect recipe of a prospect for you? How would you describe the person when you see them or hear about them, you say, I got to work with them? Well, it's a great question. In a way, I've never quite articulated this before. So thank you for drawing that out of me because I'm going to make this up as I go along here. So I appreciate that. So the first thing is, of course, is they have to be coachable. If I detect that someone is so stuck in their ways that they're really not willing to listen and do, then I don't really think it's a fit. It's going to be a slugfest for me and probably for them too. The second thing is, is that they have to be able to think outside the box and look at new ideas. And I'm willing to stand by their side and guide them through that process. But in our first session, in any engagement that I have, I do a very unusual exercise. My first session with any new client is two hours long. And I take them through a pathway to discover a little bit about themselves that many people have never really looked at before. And I am building uh, sort of uh, behind the scenes while they're chatting, I'm building a mind map of everything that I see as the core of their existing business. And I'm using what they tell me to create a trajectory for the future. So I'll give you an example. I had a gentleman on and he started as a new client. In our conversation, It was very clear that he had made a very nice living doing what he was doing. And I'm not going to obviously tell you who it was or or specifically what he did, but he made a very nice living at what he was doing. He was a good provider, but he lost everything with COVID and he wanted to restart that business. And in the series of questions that I had asked him, I helped him to discover something about himself that he had never really looked at before. In a matter of 40 minutes of, you know, into our session, he had broke down and started to cry and said he had never really realized this about himself before. And then from that moment in time, everything we did going forward was based on this discovery of who he truly was. Now, I've done this with NFL players. I've done this with CEOs generating with $50 million companies. It doesn't matter where you are or in your life. It doesn't matter how quote unquote successful you've been. There, all of us have this desire, and in many ways, we have adopted our lives to our needs and our family's needs, and those are all good things. But if we can find a way to unleash this desire in a positive way, it might turn out to be the most profitable thing we could do as well, as well as the most satisfying. So that's part of my process. Now, if, for example, I take a person through this process, and I'm really getting nothing back, or I'm not really able to get them to where I think of as the next stage in their own evolution, then I know I'm going to have a difficult time with this individual because I need them to open up to me. Now, I'm a stranger. I get that. But, you know, I have a way about getting people to open up. And in many ways, it's really all about them anyway. It's nothing to do with me. It's 
really trying to shine a light on their best qualities. And in many cases, we don't take advantage of our greatest skills and assets because in the past, they didn't seem to benefit us. But in the future, they may have to. And that's part of why we do this exercise that's so powerful. So I had one woman many years ago tell me that she was so exhausted after every session with me that she had to lay down and sometimes it took two days to recover. Uh, (laughs) And she said she doesn't think she can continue. This woman, what I would call a trust fund baby. So she had never actually had a job in her entire life, but she had this desire to create a business. And probably in my early years, I was maybe a little too enthusiastic about what I saw in her and about her. I might've actually pushed her a little too hard, but she would never have made it to the end anyway, because she just really wasn't willing to do the work. And there's work, as you know, in any endeavor, there's going to be concern, in some cases, even fear. And everything we want is on the other side of that. And my goal and my job as your coach is to get you to the other side of that and show you what's already, what I can see that's already there. Hmm. So it's not only the business reset that you specialize in. I'm interpreting your words as you also do a individual reinvent. Yes. Because that's what oftentimes we must do, especially when we are facing trials and and hurdles that we either anticipated or didn't anticipate. And certainly so many people are in that boat right now uh, in 2020. It's a fascinating exercise. When you speak of individuals, you obviously have a lot of influence with people. And that's one reason why we were so eager to interview you for Game Face Execs podcast, because we're all about finding those nuggets that help us all be better influencers and persuaders and to inspire people to do greater things. You've also worked with people who could be described as great persuaders and influencers. You've partnered with Tony Robbins. You've partnered with Chet Holmes and Kevin Harrington, who's the original shark of Shark Tank. So these are your partners. These are your friends. And this is not to discount your value at all, Mitch, but those are household names to people in business. So in order to partner with those types of personalities and those prominent personalities, what does someone like you have to do? How did you win them over so that they had confidence in you and said, Mitch, you're the person that we want to do this venture with? When I built Time Slips Corporation, I was the guy. I was the guy on stage. I was the guy on camera. I was the spokesperson, the name that signed every letter. I was the guy. And I got used to that. And I expected that all my life I'd be the guy. But when it came to working with people like the names you mentioned, I'm not the guy. I'm the guy behind the curtain. And I found that while I loved creating new things, I love building new things. I also found a love for creating systems to run the things that other people have built too. So when I came along uh, and was hired by Chet Holmes, for example, to come into his company for one small project. Now, to be fair, and you should know this, we were very good friends for years. He solicited me selling advertising back when I was running Timeslips Corporation And we stayed close friends. We built a friendship on that business relationship that lasted all of our lives until he passed away. But the thing was, of course, is that I had to come into Chet's company, but Chet's the guy, not me. And I had to create the things that were missing for him, which I was more than willing to do. In fact, I loved doing those things. I'm an engineer by background. I have an engineering mind. So when I approach something, I always think about the way it could work the most efficiently. And it goes back to my why, to find a better way. So, you know, when I I walk into a situation, there are people doing a lot of manual things. There's a whole, you know, mess of folks doing stuff that they shouldn't be doing. And I look at this and I see, in my mind, I see a picture that lays out instantly in three dimensions exactly what that system would be. And I go about building it. And That's what I did for Tony. That's what I did with Chet and Tony. And with Kevin Harrington, you know, what we did is we created a company together and he was the spokesperson for that company. He was the guy. He was the head and he was the one on camera, the one who signed the letters. 
And I had to build the backend systems in order to create the company around what we were doing. So, and that turned out to be a great place. I enjoyed it so much. Where it became a deficit was after Chet passed away and after I left that organization, I realized, hey, you know what? I'm nobody. I have no list. Nobody knows who I am. I've been forgotten for many years. And after all, I was really only known in the legal industry as the founder of Time Slips. So I had to start over from scratch. And I had to, from the beginning, rebuild everything about how to become the guy again. And that's really what I've been doing ever since 2012 when that partnership dissolved. In your years of starting businesses and building products and building relationships, is there one thing that you can look back on? And despite the story you told us previously of the problem you had with a client in Los Angeles, which actually led to a business, another side of your business, is there one thing you've done though, Mitch, in your past in the spirit of vulnerability that you could share with us where you say, boy, that was a big mistake. I just never should have done that. Whether it was a particular move or whether it was, um, whether it was a pivot you shouldn't have taken or simply a, a mentality or an attitude that you had at one point in your career. Yes, there's several. <laughs> in fact, unfortunately, there's many. <laughs> Probably a few things came to mind. I'll try and do them in somewhat chronological order. So after I had sold my company and after I was working independently, a friend and I got together for lunch and I had an idea for a new internet startup. Uh, that was, the web was just becoming popular. It was 2005. He and I together had conceived of a new type of dating site. And uh, we got really excited about it. We sketched it out. At that point, saw no possible competition at all from anyone. And we were thinking we'd go forward and fund this ourselves because we both had sold companies. And we would get the foundation of this thing built and then maybe raise money. But at the last minute, he asked me if I would mind if he brought a friend along to sort of listen in and be part of our conversation. And I, I don't want to disclose who it was, but his friend was someone famous. His friend had been profiled in a major motion picture, had a bit of dazzle about him. But, and because I trusted my friend as my partner, I said yes. And I skipped the part where I got to do the true due diligence into who this individual was because I trusted my friend's word. Well, that turned out to be a huge mistake. I uh, got my family involved. We all invested money. We put about a half a million dollars of our own money into this project collectively. And because of this individual, it was a complete flop. Uh, he did things that shocked me completely. And never in my wildest dream would I imagine anyone would be so stupid. But yet we were stuck with him. He was a founding member, a stockholder, and an officer of the company. Until it got to the point, we basically had to shut it down. So we lost a lot of money, lost a lot of time. And potentially, it was an incredible idea, died on the vine. So, so were you romanced by the celebrity figure? Or did you feel like you didn't have the muscle to say, no, wait, we need to do more due diligence? A little bit of both. I really didn't want to challenge my friend and my friendship to say, hey, wait a minute, I got to do more due diligence on this guy. But on the surface, he looked incredible. He would say things like, yeah, when we're ready to launch, I'll just announce this to my publicist and we'll be on TV. We'll... And actually, we were featured on Good Morning America at one point with this new idea. So it wasn't as if it wasn't real. He was an irresponsible individual with very poor sensibilities and very irresponsible. So he did things that put us in jeopardy all the time without thinking. So it was a combination of, of me not having the guts, in a sense, to go forward and challenge my friend and being a little dazzled by the fact that he was this famous person. So for sure. Understandable, though, looking back. At the same time, and we don't need to hear all the, your other failure stories, because I'm sure they're not as voluminous as you're suggesting. But let me ask you on the flip side, as I said earlier, you've created some very interesting and powerful relationships in business. Is there a particular move that you've made in your career when you can look back, not to say your career is over yet, Mitch, but so far in your career, you look back and you say, that was a pivotal move. 
that was a turning point in my career. I'm so glad I did that. Whether it was against my better judgment at the time, or it was just good luck, or whatever it may have been. Is there a moment you can point to? I have two that were significant moments, decision moments that were, in some sense, a little hard. The first one was when we were building the software company and selling time billing software to lawyers. I received a call from an organization in Chicago, and I, I'm not good with the Chicago accent, but imagine I'm speaking in a thick Chicago accent here. And it turns out to be one of the officers for the American Bar Association. And a very friendly voice said, hey, uh, Mitch, uh, yeah, I see you selling software to lawyers here. And uh, yeah, yeah, that's not really a good idea, selling it without the American Bar Association certification. So uh, we'd love to help you get certified so us, uh, we could sell some of that software you got there. <laughs> I said, uh, sure, I'm happy to. Uh, what do we got to do? Should we submit it? No, no, no. You don't have to submit nothing. It's just $46,000. We send you the paperwork. You pay the $46,000. We give you a certification and and you're good to go, Mitch. And I said to him, what? Are you out of your mind? You think I'm going to give you $46,000 for some stupid ABA rubber stamp? He goes, yeah, Mitch. And if you don't, you know, we'll kind of destroy you basically, you know. I said, you know what? I think I'm going to take my chances on this. I'm going to let the market decide. And I, at that point, decided that I was going to double my efforts in marketing to lawyers. And we had a couple of what I call lucky breaks, luck meaning being super prepared at a moment in time when the opportunity strike. And we, 18 months, even 14 months from that moment in time of that phone call, we had achieved number one status in the legal market as time and billing. Now, here's the surprising part that was really kind of shocking. We received a call. I received a call two years later from another individual at the American Bar Association who said to me, oh, yeah, we kind of dissolved that division. We don't longer do that. And we want you to thank. And by the way, I wrote the ABA. I wrote the president of the ABA describing the shakedown that I had gone through. And now this guy calls me up and says, how would you like to speak? at the American Bar Association National Meeting and tell your story from stage. You're kind of famous in our little world anyway, so I think we'd love to hear from you. And I said, oh, okay. So that move, which was maybe dangerous at the time, became pivotal. Took guts. So it did. The other one that is less inspiring maybe is a simple one. Three and a half, four years ago, I decided to create a podcast And my goal was to build a show where I didn't really care who listened to it. I just wanted to have my guests be my ideal clients. So my thought was I could get my ideal clients onto my show, have a dynamite one-hour conversation with them, and then chat with them about what I did. And if it was a fit, maybe help them with their business. Well, at first, it didn't work very well. In fact, for the first year, I didn't really sign a single new client. And on top of that, I wasn't getting 50, 60 downloads an episode. It was terrible, really. But I kept going. And I said, you know what? I know this can work. I know I just need to refine what I'm doing, maybe do a better job of inviting the right guests, et cetera. But now my podcast is probably my single largest source of new clients that I bring into my practice. And at the same time, my show is, you know, getting 25,000 downloads a month, which is, you know, it's pretty good. I mean, it's, I mean, I never really cared a lot about the number of downloads. That never really was a thing for me, but it was discouraging after a year to not be getting many many at all. So. Well, you're describing your first thousand clients, correct? Correct. Yes. Tell us all how we can find your podcast. You just said the words, go to yourfirsttausandclients.com and there's the show. And uh, how many episodes would we find in a month? Oh, well, we publish once a week. Right now, there's about 215, 13, something like that episodes. The last one, I think, in fact, was a Kevin Harrington episode. Before that, we had Seth Godin on the show as well and some other wonderful folks. So, And we know that yours is one of the top 200 podcasts on iTunes, if I'm not mistaken. Well, it touched the top 200 once. So it's not, it doesn't sit there in the top 200, but it did touch it once and it fluctuates. You know, it's in the top 50 management 
grouping regularly. So that's nice. But like I said, I don't really care a lot about that as much as I do about finding the right guests who I believe really resonate with the message that I'm telling. Yeah, wonderful. Well, as we wrap up, Mitch, and uh, this has been a great conversation. Appreciate your insights and uh, also you sharing uh, the value of your experience with all of us. As we wrap up, thinking towards 2021, how should we business people sleeping right now? Should we be nervous? Should we be losing sleep? Or are there certain things we can do to get a better night's rest looking forward? We've all gone through approximately three stages since the beginning of COVID. I think the first stage was denial, which was, hey, this will be over soon. We'll get back to business. It won't be a big deal. Then second stage is, is reality sets in where we're saying, whoa, this isn't going away soon at all. And I'm kind of in trouble here. And the third stage is where I think requires a true shift in mindset because the third stage is, okay, I get it. Things will never be the way they were before. I got to do something new and it's time to act. Now, I have a free gift for your audience. If, if you would like, I'd be happy to share that. And it will help them take that first step to changing where they are if that's what they choose to do and promote their business, get more publicity, get on more podcasts, do the sort of things that people who are in the process of actively promoting themselves should be doing anyway. But the bottom line is in that third stage, either you're stuck and haven't made that decision yet, or you've made that decision and you're excited about moving forward, even though right now things look bleak. Well, we'd love to have that free gift. How do we get it? Go to ProfitStackingSecrets.com. I think there's a download there. There is a download there. I think it's very valuable. You know, most people have a little graveyard on their desktop where they put all their downloads. And, you know, I beg you, please don't download this if that's where you want to put it. Instead, I want you to open it up and promise me five minutes of your time to read even the first section and do one thing. There's three things that I ask you to do in this download. Do one thing, prepare a profile and use the links that I provide and go out there and apply to be on podcasts. There's three or four agencies I list in this free download where you can go on there and find shows that are looking for you and be a guest, tell your story, share your experience and knowledge and get people to get to know you. Well, I can assure my listeners and my viewers that you did not have to fill out that form for us to find you. <laughs> uh, your reputation is wonderful, and uh, you've proven it out here in this interview. It's been a real pleasure, Mitch, and thank you again for your words of wisdom and for your advice and your encouragement and for uh, hopefully inspiring a, a lot of people who are listening right now, and I would encourage them to take advantage of your free offer. We wish you the best, Mitch, in your continued pursuit of resetting businesses and reinventing individuals. Thank you, Rob. Thanks for being a part of this episode of Game Face Execs. If you found any of it useful or helpful, please rate or like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. I always appreciate you referring us to others as well. I'll see you next week. Until then, persuade, influence, inspire.